Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Owen Jones here. Welcome to the podcast. Now, I did promise at the very start I would speak to people I disagree with. Boy, is this a prime example. It's the right-wing commentator, Peter Hitchens. We do battle over the pandemic. He thinks I figuratively am decapitated without realising it. Lovely. As well as his very surprising Brexit views, including the fact he didn't even vote in a EU referendum. That was a surprise. Uh, quick housekeeping, as ever. The new podcast is about offering an alternative to the right-wing media, take on injustice, speak truth to power, optimism, hope, show there's another way, and have fun. We have loads and loads of interviews, discussions, documentaries to come, as well as already uploaded. But we want to expand and offer even more content. We have a team on union wages. Anything you donate via the support function in the podcast description is really appreciated. Or go to patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Become a regular supporter there. You can have a say over who we speak to, what we talk about, what issues we focus on. Could just be three quid a, a month. The price of a, I mean, admittedly, rip-off coffees these days. Whatever you do, please like the show on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and share the show with your friends, family, workmates, whoever. With that done, here's the interview with Peter Hitchens. Do bear in mind it was recorded at the start of December. All our interviews will, from now on, uh, come out when they're recorded uh, for the YouTube channel, which is where this was originally broadcast. I am afraid, though, his views on coronavirus have not aged well. Peter, what a tremendous honour. Oh, don't get carried away. Well, we'll I hope you appreciate how festive, how festive increasingly I've become. I really embraced the spirit of Christmas this year. You certainly have, haven't you? Yes. I haven't got that far yet. You're not, not, not an early Christmas tree. No, I'm not, this year I probably shall because it's so, it's so dismal in general. And normally I, I stick to Advent being a season of, of, of penitence and fasting. Christmas doesn't really start till, till the 25th in, in, the, in the proper calendar. The rest of my family think that that's that's miserable, hopeless, and impractical, and this year I'm giving in to them. Well, I I mean, it's been such a miserable year. We'll talk about that a bit later on. We both agree it was miserable. Uh, I think lots of people felt embracing Christmas early on was basically the only thing that could make them happy amongst all the gloom. I think a lot of people are doing things at the moment which they would not normally do, uh, which they would have thought were impossible, and and finding themselves taking sides with people they wouldn't normally take sides with and, uh, and holding... Uh, opinions which they uh, quite, find quite surprising in some cases as well and, and finding allies they didn't expect to have it's it's a very strange discombobulating era we will... a, a bit of early christmas is perfectly okay by me so we're going to come what i'm going to do what my, my suggestion is we're going to have a demarcation we're going to talk about because the pandemic stuff we're going to have to talk about obviously <laughs> but we'll, we'll demarcate it because i'm interested in look to, talking about you know talking about other burning topics and issues and I should say, because we did an interview in what seems like another universe five and a half years ago. Is it that uh, long? Is it, 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 it truly was. Over, 
a million people watched that video. Uh, it was quite, it was quite, I still get stopped yeah. in the street by people who mentioned that video. Oh, what, what I'll start with, I mean, I'm interested. One thing that I've, you know, I know, I, I don't know how if you find this irritating to talk about. I've got the Winter Palace behind me dangling there. The, the one thing that me and you don't have in common is you were once a member of a revolutionary Trotskyist organization and I wasn't. So people always find this fascinating, that journey, why you were attracted in your younger years to revolutionary socialism and what journey you went on very much in a different direction. It's very simple. I was brought up with strong beliefs in patriotic beliefs and religious beliefs. And I felt let down. It seemed to me I, I was growing up at the very end of the, of, of the post-war era when we were just about to lunge into the Profumo the Profumo scandal, and we'd been through Suez. I can just remember Suez and the petrol rationing and the general feeling of woe and diminished expectations. And I got the impression quite early on that the society which I'd been brought up to live in uh, had ceased to exist, and the things which I'd been brought up to believe in had had given up ghost. So I was quite, uh, I was quite pleased when I found that there were other things in which I could believe. And I found revolutionary Marxism very appealing. In some ways, I still do. I mean, it's, it's, it's a rather Edwardian uh, set of beliefs, actually. Uh, very simple and, and, uh, and straightforward and in its own way moral. And I don't find any difficulty in understanding why I did it, uh, but I found that it, it was fundamentally mistaken, in my view. I still think so. So I'm completely cured of it. But it, it, there was a lot of good training in it for, uh, for me in terms of how I understand society, how I understand politics, what I think matters, who I believe and who I don't believe. And, of course, what you have read and what you have not read and what you know about and what you don't know about, it, it, it stimulates a desire for knowledge about the world, which I'm afraid far too few people seem to have these days. I mean, it, it is fascinating, actually, how... I mean, there's, there's a, a broad range of people politicians who ended up senior Labour figures, but also a few in the Conservative Party who began in communist or Trotskyist movements. And it, it was it did seem to provide political education for for those who, even if they ended up in a very different trajectory, some of the people behind right. New Labour, Thatcherism. But I'd argue that the, a lot of the people, in, we, we will never know uh, because the, the MI5 records of the so-called subversive organisations were, as far as I know, destroyed en masse in the fairly early years of New Labour. We'll never know how many people in New Labour, in fact, had such past, because that would be the only reliable way of finding out. I'm almost unique in this in that I go on so much about it. Everybody knows that I'm an ex-Trotskyist because I make sure that they do. In general, the major New Labour figures who were former Trotskyists or former communists were quite reticent about it and didn't want to talk about it, and, and, and to this day don't. Uh, but there was an awful lot of them. And the most prominent of those who didn't want to talk about it while he was anywhere near power was Blair himself. And I'm still amazed, this extraordinary interview which Blair gave Peter Hennessy, must be two or three years ago now, uh, in which he, he actually said, yes, I was, a, I was a Trotskyist at the university. I was completely bowled over by Isaac Deutsch's three-volume biography. And I think he had friends who were, who were in Trotskyist organisations. And it passed as if he'd never said it. I was the only journalist, as far as I know, who ever wrote about it. But imagine if Blair had, in 1996 or 1997, said, well, actually, yes, I was a Trotskyist at the university. Uh, what would have happened? Uh, it, it would have completely destroyed the whole confection 
of this uh, moderate public school boy who was leading labor into a new era of moderation. Uh, the fact was that he, he was one, and, and he, he, he never quite said which organization he belonged to. He began the sentence, I always remember this quite funny, uh, when I was in the, in the uh, 1970s. He, I think he was about to name whatever sect he'd been in, and he decided that he would think better of that. I don't blame him. But a, a lot of them, Alan Milburn and, and uh, Alistair Darling and John Reed and Peter Mandelson and Stephen Byers and, uh, and Bob Ainsworth, uh, just to name a few that come to mind without any great effort, all had some sort of, of revolutionary socialist background. Uh, and how much of it had they given up? I, I don't know. I, what most revolutionary socialists did was to adapt their revolutionary opinions, particularly in the in the direction of, of cultural revolution. When the idea that that a working class revolution might happen became completely ludicrous after Mrs. Thatcher abolished the working class, people had to look elsewhere. And I think the Gramscian road to power seized the television studio, seized the newspaper, uh, seized the university, seized the schools. Is much, much more appealing than storming the Winter Palace and grabbing the post office and the railway station, which is what we used to set out to do. I mean, before I ask you a bit more about New Labour, because I'm fascinated by that particular take on it, I mean, Thatcherism, would you not say Thatcherism, in a sense, was was an assault on actually many of the things you hold dear? I mean, in terms of, you know, the breakdown of the traditional family unit, that was really accelerated by Thatcherite economics. Okay, yeah. I completely agree with that. Thatcherism was um, uh, was a radical liberal movement. It had, it had no time at all for social and moral conservatism, uh, and in my view, very little for political conservatism. It was all about money in the end. Uh, I, I challenge people from both sides of the spectrum to say to name me one socially and politically and morally conservative thing which the Thatcher government did, and they can't come up with one because there aren't any. Uh, it, it simply wasn't about that. Same with Ronald Reagan in the United States. Conservatives still worship him, but he was not a conservative. And Reagan had grown up as a New Deal Democrat. And he, he, he didn't actually have any particularly conservative instincts at all. Uh, but there was a great confusion between liberalization of the economy and conservatism at, the, at that time, from which many people still haven't shaken free. I mean, Section 28 was certainly moral conservatism embodied, surely. That's the one they come up with, but in fact, I don't believe it was ever at any stage applied. I, I think there's no instance of it ever actually having having been brought into action. But that's because it had a chilling effect. So I, I wasn't taught growing up about LGBTQ issues at school because they just avoided it because Section 28 had a chilling effect. So to avoid, well, that's, that's what, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't talk about it. Well, maybe so. I mean, I would say that was probably a post-talk ergo proctor fallacy. You weren't taught about it because in those days people weren't taught about that sort of thing. Uh, the, the idea that people should be taught about that sort of thing was really a, a product of the post um, the post nineteen ninety seven era. It would have seemed quite odd to people to have that sort of thing taught in schools before then. It may be that you had teachers who longed to teach you and were prevented from a fear of it a law that no one had ever ever used to prosecute anybody. But it, it, on the other hand, it may just be that they didn't do it. I don't know. I could, it would be possible. Attributing causation is always the hardest thing to do. Uh, and maybe people can come up with instances of people who can show that they were deterred from doing it by Section 28. But I, I, I find it rather unlikely. So, I mean, it's interesting because you look at New Labour, you know, partly as in terms of 
you know, I mean, they did, to be fair, openly talk about Antonio Gramsci, though lots of people do, the Italian Marxist theorist who talked about hegemony, uh, cultural hegemony. Uh, and some of them did you see new, new Labour advisors come through Marxism today, which was the theoretical organ of the of the yeah. Communist Party associated with your communism. But, I mean, from my perspective, as someone very much on the left, I would look at New Labour in terms of its, you know, whether I think it's good things, minimum wage, public investment, that kind of thing. But it slashed corporation tax on big business. It expanded the private sector to areas Margaret Thatcher wouldn't have even have dreamt. I mean, it was, it, it was full of, an, it was an accommodation with, with economic liberalism. Well, you could say, and I often have, that the current uh, the current world is is, is the, the hideous love child of Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping, uh, where all the worst elements of both systems come together into into a horrific union. Uh, but you do have to, and this is one of the great things about being old, you do have to understand what actually happened in 1968. And in 1968, it, it wasn't just that the, the Warsaw Pact tanks rolled into Prague, and it wasn't just that there was this extraordinary festival of of whatever it was in Paris, uh, there was a general re-imagining of what the left was about. And that became Eurocommunism, which you called so-called Eurocommunism, and dismissed in a, in a phrase earlier on. It's a hugely important development. What Gramsci, what Antonio Gramsci had discovered in the 1920s, because uh, he was intelligent, uh, was that the, the Bolshevik experiment was never going to work in, a, in, a, in Western Europe. With its advanced, uh, its advanced and comparatively wealthy societies, its strong Christianity, uh, its powerful trade unions, and all kinds of other things, which would simply get in the way. And Gramsci said, "This will never work." It's a, the Soviet Union is already a disaster. Uh, it's an albatross around our neck. What we need is to is to find a new approach. And his approach was would now be described as either the long march to the institutions, a phrase which was not his, or cultural revolution, a phrase which also was his. But the takeover of 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 society, not by the seizure of state power but by the seizure of cultural and moral power and by attacks on patriarchy and the married family and, uh, and also, of course, on what used to be the pervasive uh, moral power of Christianity now completely disappeared. And Eurocommunism was, uh, was of course, a very important trend which, which hugely increased in power after the obvious disaster to the, to the left-wing movement of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. What could have been worse? All these stupid old men in Homburg hats standing on Lenin's tomb dispatching tanks to crush a revolution of, of, of young and, and, and hopeful people. How could the left continue to live with that? Well, they didn't. The left have learned from their disasters and mistakes, and what they learned was a new approach, and that approach is what we see now. It's very effective, it's very successful, very few conservatives understand it, and therefore none of them know how to fight it. And so they don't. They, they actually accept it largely. I mean, when I interviewed you five and a half years ago, you, you were pretty glum about politics and about the trajectory of the nation. And that actually, I think, was pretty understandable from your perspective, because at the time, David Cameron and George Osborne were hegemonic in the Conservative Party, the so-called Cameroons. But and I must emphasise pre-pandemic. So let's go back to January before, you know, there was rumblings in the distance, but the pandemic was not, you know, didn't it wasn't. It didn't define our existence. It seemed very distant and far away. Um, you know, I put it to you, you know, Conservative Party, which stood on a, you know, a, 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 that had repudiated social liberalism after a, uh, you know, the, the success, of course, of, of the Leave Calls, the European Union, something you've, you've, you've advocated for a very, very long time. 
And that instead of a soft Brexit, a, a very hard, I would argue, break with the European Union is, is now imminent. Uh, and, you know, they came to power on the back of that on, on a kind of national conservative programme, which, which repudiated the social liberalism of Blair and Cameron. So back then, surely you'd got everything you'd ever wanted. No, that's a mistake, both me and them. I, I don't think that there was any real repudiation of social liberalism. I, Johnson himself uh, is a profoundly socially and morally liberal person in his life. Uh, so I think one might say of, of Michael Gove, a man who once memorably wrote in the Times that he, you, you must have watched the film It's a Wonderful Life, in which the, the nice Christian town of, of uh, Bedford Falls is transformed into the the hideous, seething, corrupt uh, city of, of Pottersville. Uh, Michael wrote in the Times that he preferred Pottersville with its its go-go girls and its its armed police and all the rest of it. And I think he was telling a profound truth. And I so I don't think it was any at all uh, against social liberalism in, on the front bench of the modern Conservative Party to the extent any of them care about it at all. And jo- Johnson and Gove are probably among the few who are at all even remotely politically or historically literate. Uh, they are themselves social liberals. The European issue, I was, I, I never wanted a referendum. Um, my attitude towards the European Union was fundamentally that it was a threat to the thing which I value probably above all in our system, which is our particular legal approach. Uh, first, first of all, the, the, the Magna Carta basis of limited government, the, the, the repudiation of Roman law in favour of common law and the huge importance of the presumption of innocence and jury trial. And it seemed to me that in any long-term engagement with the with the European Union and, and ever closer union with it, with every other country apart from the Republic of Ireland adopting the, the more or less the Roman law civil code attitude towards law, our system w- was bound to go. And that was my non-negotiable point. I was never particularly interested in the economic side. Uh, I think referenda are actually a danger to a parliamentary democracy. They're unconstitutional and they create rival sovereignties. You have two, you have two, two rival democratic mandates in one society and, and which is in charge. And it, I, I thought it would be disastrous and it was. So I took no part in the referendum and didn't vote in it. Uh, so none of that confused me at all. I, you, it, it's, it, it, I'm sorry if my position is so hard to keep uh, to, to keep track of. I don't. I understand why people might find it hard to keep track of. But in fact, I am a, I am a conservative uh, with a very small C indeed. Not um, not a UKIPper, uh, not a Thatcherite, not a Reaganite. I don't. I dis, I dislike Nigel Farage. Uh, and one of the things I dislike him for is because he's talked openly, for instance, of legalising marijuana. Uh, oh, yeah. He's to be a completely unconservative position, and I, I just don't think he is. So uh, the, the why, whole, else? why uh, else don't you like Nigel Farage? Free trade doesn't appeal to me either. I'm not a free trader, so none of this. Uh, I, I don't like like it at all. I wanted the Norway option. I wanted us to stay in the single market, and quite frankly, in the customs union as well, if we could manage it. But I wanted us to get out of the political and and legal chains of the European Union, and and that I would have been very happy with. And but that no one's been very interested in negotiating that. Which is why we face this chasm now of whatever's going to happen on New Year's Eve. I mean, I was, I was, I was very happy with Norway Plus. I wrote several columns in defence of Norway Plus. But uh, I mean, many, many people on the right would argue sort of, the Brexit is certainly that's Brexit in name only. Well, they can argue what they like. I, I, I wouldn't use the term Brexit either. 
always said it. it sounds like a rather unpleasant laxative breakfast cereal. I, I don't care whether it's in name only or not. My concerns were about the, the, the thousand years of history, which Hugh Gateskill feared would end when he made that great speech of his in the words of 1962, uh, saying that he was against Britain joining the then colonial market and uh, probably the best anti-colonial market speech ever made by any British politician. I, I value those thousand years of history. I, I think the uniqueness of, of our of our legal system of the freedom of the individual which results from it is incredibly precious and that's what bothered me i don't particularly care about the uh, about in fact I, I i can positive once you're in the single market and have been in the single market for many many years then getting out of it is incredibly difficult and my late friend christopher booker warned tremendously and again and again about how people simply didn't understand what it would mean becoming as we will become on january the first a third country and the immense bureaucracy which that would then impose on our trading relations with our most immediate neighbors. I, I can't see when anyone is in favor of it, but it, that's, you, it, when everybody's howling at each other with megaphones, any sort of still small voice just gets unheard. So I'm not surprised you're not aware of this, but my position is, is, not, uh, is not one of enthusiasm for that. I didn't want a referendum and uh, I didn't uh, particularly rejoice the result of it. Uh, Boris Johnson, um, I mean, we've already mentioned him, but. I could just want to say one thing. People will say, well, there's, there's this film of you looking quite happy in the morning afters. I did have a strong moment of schadenfreude because I thought the vote was at the very least a, a humiliation and embarrassment to an awful lot of people who richly deserved it. But I, I didn't go any further than that. I didn't think, oh, great, everything's going to be all right from now on. It's not a new dawn. I just, I, I did enjoy, as I'm willingly confessed to doing, I did enjoy the discomfiture of my opponents. I always do. <laughs> I think there's nothing wrong with admitting to a bit of schadenfreude now and then. And I yeah. certainly don't begrudge it. Unfortunately, I don't get much much room for schadenfreude these days. I don't get much chance at it either, but I really take it when I get it. <laughs> In my case, very rare, very rare indeed. Uh, and increasingly so. I mean, just on, you know, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, obviously, a year ago, almost exactly, won a 80-seat majority, the first working Conservative majority since 1987. What... I'd be fascinated just to hear your. I know Tony Benn always said it's about the it's about the issues, not not personality. But I'm interested in both. What's your take on him in terms of his political worldview as a politician, as a prime minister, and his character? I mean, it is very difficult to avoid talking about Boris Johnson without talking about his character because I think it's hard to divorce that issue from his political worldview, such as it is. Well, I mean, like an awful lot of journalists, I've I've had some. Um, pleasant moments with uh, Johnson. Uh, he's, he was quite helpful to me when he was editor of The Spectator. Indeed, we cooked up together on one occasion a, uh, a, 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 a scheme which ended up with me uh, applying f- to become a Conservative candidate for Kensington and Chelsea, not with any hope, I have to tell you, of my becoming Conservative candidate for Kensington and Chelsea, but just to mess up Michael Portillo, which we both, for our various different reasons, wanted to do, and I had a book to publicise at the time. Uh, so he was fun. He, he was engaging. I didn't think he was as funny as other people did. I think once you heard one of his speeches, you'd probably heard them all. Uh, I did not. The more I looked into him, the more I thought there was no really solid politics there, certainly not conservative politics. And if I'd been asked to make a bet in the run up to the referendum, which way both he and Michael Gove would have voted and campaigned, I'd have put them both on the Remain side. Uh, so he, he wasn't really an ally of mine. He's, he's, he's certainly not a social and moral conservative either in his attitude or in his life. 
and no ally of mine. So I, I, I didn't entertain any, any hopes in that direction at all. And I also thought that he, in the Conservative Party, in the course of becoming leader, uh, he displayed a sort of almost Corleone-like uh, attitude. Anybody who backed him uh, was his friend forever. Anyone who got in his way was his enemy forever. And there wasn't much politics in that, which is why he's surrounded in, in, by these mediocre hatchet men uh, who have their positions as a result of having chosen early to be his supporters. And that's about their only talent, uh, was, a, was an early plunge into Johnsonism. Who are the, who are the mediocre hatchet men? Uh, well, um, in, 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 one struggles to remember their names because they're so insignificant. I, the education, Gavin Williamson, was, um, was particularly, I think, keen on, on, on joining the Johnson campaign. And I think, um, I think Hancock uh, was another of them. Mm-hmm. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, Gavin Williams. Well, yeah, I struggle to remember the names of modern politicians. I, they, 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 they drift in and they drift out, and one, one finds it very hard to care. I used to know. I used to when I was in my in my teens, I used to be able to to name the the full name and constituency of every member of parliament. Can you imagine? I, I, I don't even half. I don't even who nine tenths of them are now. And I don't care. Um, Keir Starmer. What do you make of him? Well, he's another Trotskyist. Uh, as, as we discussed in our last meeting underneath the Cecil Rhodes statue in Oxford, he, he's a, he, he was a Pabloite, a uh, member of the strange faction surrounding a, a magazine called Socialist Alternatives. And he gave a very inter- interesting interview in the New Statesman, which he made fairly clear that he hadn't changed much. And what he had done was what so many on the left have subsequently done. They've identified the, the issues which they wish to pursue as the issues of sexual politics, and of course, green politics is central to his uh, to to what socialist alternatives was recommending at the time. Uh, very prescient, uh, but no question at all. This this man is 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 a very very radical uh, political thinker. Uh, he's not. Uh, people think, well, he was Attorney General. He must be some sort of uh, conservative. He's absolutely nothing of the kind. Uh, and it's quite funny uh, to see people who, as usual, know nothing about it. Uh, suggesting that because uh, Keir Starmer has taken over the Labour Party from Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party has moved from left-wing uh, extremism to some sort of moderate good sense. Nothing of the kind is happening. It's, it's moved from steam-powered, obvious, cranky uh, local government leftism to uh, smoothie uh, computerized leftism, which uses moisturiser, which he does, by the way. 
I also do use moisturizer. I hope no, but I possibly can can gather or, or, or indeed see. Do not. <laughs> no, I, I I don't know. I think you look very youthful. Oh, I mean, I, it's it's often commented that I, yeah. I mean, you know, socialism is a good. I just had to get it in. I think I think the fact that Keir Starmer moisturizes daily is 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 to me it's it's a um, it's, it's a very significant point. It's it's new man. That's uh... and I'm an old man in <laughs> more ways than one. On, I don't want to talk about drugs because I know we we disagree on 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 that issue. But one thing I'm interested in, uh, and not to avoid it, I just think it would end up being quite a long distraction. But one thing I'm interested in is it, we know a whole host of conservative senior politicians took drugs uh, repeatedly. So uh, some have confessed to it publicly, some have not. But don't you think, notwithstanding our disagreements? that it is profoundly unjust that there are lots of disproportionately young black men with criminal records for taking drugs. Laws supported and enforced by senior conservative politicians who took ample amount of drugs, did exactly the same thing, often from perhaps some of the young people they now criminalise. Do you think they should have gone to prison for it? Well, I'm not a great advocate of sending people to prison if you can possibly avoid it. I think prison is, is, is there for people who won't stop when all efforts are made to get them to stop. I'm very rarely, for instance, would I, except cases of homicide or very serious violence, uh, would I be in favor of imprisoning someone on a first offense? So who knows? That would depend on how, on, on how sustained their drug use was and if they were convicted and, uh, and, and then continued to do it. But my point would be, and my point has always been about this, that the, although the, the law does occasionally uh, actually bother to prosecute and even punish people for drug offences, it's in general not particularly interested. And it has ceased to be interested as a, as a direct matter of policy, particularly since the Runciman report uh, came out in the, in the middle years of, of, of New Labour. But before then as well, there's been a de facto decriminalisation of drugs. So I, I can't really take your side on an argument which claims that lots and lots of people are being unfairly uh, prosecuted for drug offences, because I think that actually far fewer people are being prosecuted for drug offences than ought to be. And that, that is a pity, because as a result, more people take drugs which ruin their lives. Well, I mean, you say that. I mean, I know I'm cautioning yeah. against... Again, if you, if, 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 you, if, if you make me. No, I, I, I would just point out just just factually that in 2019-2020 there are around 175,000 drug offences recorded by the police in England and Wales which is 30% higher than the year before. You're recorded but how many drug offences do you think took place unrecorded? I mean Britain Britain in in London for the smell of marijuana it's and yet technically it carries a, a prison sentence of five years and an unlimited fine it's just unenforced but I, 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 the, the countless number of, of, of offences of possession of marijuana take place and they're, they're not recorded. And even if the police actually both notice them at all, they're not prosecuted and nothing happens to the people involved. So the, may, the figure may go up, but it's not, it's not the real figure of the number of people breaking the law. Uh, moving away from drugs. Um, I, am well, inter- I know more about this than you do. 
It will, I'm sure you know lots more about various things well, than me. I've, re- I've written about this extensively, so we, people can read our different opinion pieces. We actually once had an exchange of columns on this issue, so maybe they should do that. But on, books, that's why I've got a book that you have to do. I know. You, 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 I mean, you, you, you also had a very passionate disagreement with uh, one of the cast of Friends on Newsnight. Well, it's been a surreal few years. He was passionate. I remained, as I always do, holy Stoic. Um... In terms of, uh, I'm interested in this actually. Look, you're—I would regard you as—you're you're a thinker. You—you're you, an intellectual. You read books. Your your conservatism is grounded in in a in an intellectual worldview. And I, what I'm interested in is the rise of cons- small c conservative pundits. Lawrence Fox comes to mind, and he set up a new political party. Uh, now, you've often said that the biggest threat, the obstacle, biggest barrier to conservatism is the Conservative Party. What what about what what's your take on Lawrence Fox and are you going to be joining his new political party? Uh, my view the, the political in a, t- a two-party system, I must stress here I'm in favor of the two-party adversarial system. I think it's it's a it's a very great defense of liberty. Uh, as I think I pointed out to you before the great remark of, of uh, Richard Neville, the founder of Oz in the 1960s. So there is an inch of difference, which was true at the time, between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, but it is in that inch that we all live. And the two-party system has many virtues, but one of the main ones is that the adversarial system of Parliament is a great preserver of liberty, something we're missing at the moment. So I'm not against that, but to, to, if you want to replace a political party, you have, to, you have to either destroy or be present at the destruction of one of the two major parties. Until one of those parties goes and loses its financial support and its integrity and begins to crumble away, as the, as the Liberals did during the 1920s, until that happens, you won't replace it. And setting up what you call a political party in the absence of those conditions is futile. It's no, it's, it bears the same resemblance to a, an actual political party as a Hornby Double O train set does to the old London Northeastern Railway. It's a toy. It doesn't. It's not important. You can proclaim all kinds of parties. There's very nice people who set up a thing called the, the Social Democratic Party, for which I have some time. They seem to think of it, but it's not a party. Uh, it's just a little. It's just a little gaggle. So, I, the, what has to happen first is for the Conservative Party to collapse. Uh, I believe the it, it may well do so uh, in the not too distant future, but unfortunately conditions which will make it very difficult to replace it with a conservative formation. What I did think was that in 2010, it was quite possible if people thought about what they were doing, we could have got rid of it and we could have replaced it with something better. I mean, almost anything would have been better. As I frequently said, I could have carved a better party out of banana uh, than the Conservative and Unionist Party. You sidestep Lawrence Fox. Well, I'd, I, 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 Lawrence Fox made, made a, a, an interesting appearance on Question Time. Uh, he's an enjoyable actor, and he plainly uh, does some thinking. And he's he gets a lot of abuse from the sort of people who also abuse me. So I have to be friendly towards him. But I think the idea of setting up a a new political party uh, is a mistake. I think first of all you have to destroy the old one. How in practice would you destroy the Conservative Party? Well, my view was that it, 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 the, it is that its supporters should recognise that it is, in fact, their enemy and they should stop voting for it. And if they'd done this in 2010, it would then have had, I think, four successive uh, general election defeats. And it would have lost its uh, its financial backings. 
and it would have lost its coherence. It would have been unable to sustain itself for much longer as a parliamentary party or as a force in the country. It plainly had no intellectual force uh, or, 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 or genuine political purpose. And there would then have been uh, a, a vacancy uh, into which those who wished to set up a, a, a new formation could rush and try to set up something better. Now, that might have failed. But if people had a sufficient number of conservative patriotic people had voted against the conservative bill or not voted for it at all in 2010, that could have happened. And that's, I spent an awful lot of energy urging people to do that. And I might as well have stayed at home because it had no effect at all. If there was a political party with the political perspectives, political programme that you advocate, what would it be in practice? What, how would it be distinct, not including the pandemic, which we'll talk about, um, because I know what your stance is on on, on the government measures. Yeah, let's talk about that for the moment. I, I've always said the simplest way of summing up the political arrangement I would like to see in this country. I, say, I, don't, I don't believe that anybody has total wisdom, and I do believe there should be two parties. Is that there should be uh, what you could call a Peter Hitchens party and a Polly Toynbee party. That the divisions between them would be principally uh, socially, social, cultural, and moral differences. Uh, rather than pretend, largely pretended differences over economic policy, which is pretty constrained anyway, and that would that would be the way it would be. Uh, or you could say a, a, a Guardian Party versus a Daily Mail Party would be another way of expressing it. Uh, so the, the ridiculous old ideas, which are long gone, that one party is the party of the trade unions and nationalisation, and the other party is the party of big business and, uh, and private enterprise, neither of which were ever wholly true, but were more true before about 1964 and they are now, um, that that, uh, that has to go. That we, the, the divisions in our country are, are not those which, which existed before 1964. They're wholly different and they need to be represented by different parties. I mean, would it be unfair to describe you as a, I mean, you mentioned it was a party called the Social Democratic Party, which for those who don't know, I mean, you call it a gaggle. It, it, it was a very pro-leave. It's a very pro-leave. I wasn't trying to be. I wasn't trying to be rude about it. I mean, the, no, I, no, no, no. I wasn't saying you were. No. So just so people know, though, it's a very small party which is pro Brexit and actually economically associated with traditional social democratic perspectives, but is, you know, a former um, um, uh, former cons- uh, Brexit uh, M- sorry UKIP MEP Patrick, what's his name? Used to be at the Daily Express political correspondent. Yes, I know who you mean, but his name is drained out of my head as we I'm speak. I'm so sorry, Patrick. But are you a are you a socially conservative social democrat? In that, in the past, for example, you've made it clear take public ownership of the railways that you've you've opposed the privatisation of the British railway system. Aren't you aren't you basically on 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 social issues conservative? But on some economic issues, would be associated with the economics of the left. Not very much so. And I, I, I recently wrote a review of a. Tremendous book by Professor Julian Jackson, a biography of, uh, of General de Gaulle, uh, called The Certain Idea of France, uh, one of the best biographies anybody's ever written. Uh, I find de Gaulle far more appealing than any post war British politician because he, he merged in himself uh, things which I think are perfectly mergeable as a strong patriotic uh, feeling and, and love of country uh, and a, a strong desire to, to defend his country. Uh, along with a, a, a very social democratic domestic social policy. I've never understood quite why this rather delightful political combination has, has never actually 
become more important in many countries. And indeed, it didn't long survive to go in France. Uh, but that would be my, and also this would also have a certain uh, national assertiveness. I mean, I, I really tire of our constant groveling to the United States and this pathetic pretense that we have a special relationship with them, which is, is complete fantasy. Uh, something which de Gaulle also utterly rejected in the case of France, and he, he regarded the United States as, a, as in, in many cases, a rival and certainly not a country to be sucked up to. Uh, and as a result, he probably got more concessions out of them than we ever did by, by our almost, almost incessant crawling. So, yeah, I find, that, I find that sort of combination very appealing, and I, I'm, I'm always surprised. And I think it's because the two-party system has gone wrong and doesn't allow it to develop. I'm always surprised that nothing of the kind actually arises in this country where it would be, I think, very far better adapted to our national conditions than what we have from either direction. Before I ask you about the pandemic, the defeat of Donald Trump, what, what, what's, your, what was your, what's your take on Donald Trump and Trumpism, if you like? And do you think it will outlast Trump? Uh, and 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 were you, what was your emotion at seeing Joe Biden defeat Donald Trump in that election? Well, as far as I said, Trump was always a Yahoo. Uh, he, he he didn't he, he played with various constituencies and to try to persuade them that he was he was all theirs. But I don't think he particularly was. Uh, I he can do what he likes. It's it's um, if, if people want to try and rise to power in office by behaving now that's 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 their affair what distressed me was that you'd find quite intelligent uh, christian persons in the united states becoming his supporters when he plainly wasn't one of them um i was not uh, I, and i also didn't i didn't believe his promises about trying to uh, restore the, the destroyed major industries of the United States. I don't think he could do it. And I think he, he, he made a lot of unfulfillable promises. The only thing I could find to say in his favor was that he, he wasn't Hillary Clinton and that he did not pursue the dangerously uh, aggressive idealist foreign policy, which I think Hillary Clinton would have pursued. And Joe Biden, it's interesting, if you listen to the, 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 the interview which he gave long, long ago to David Frost, which is now uh, come out of the uh, out of the cans and, and and can can be heard. He's obviously an interesting person with a you know, with a, a life of terrible personal experiences, which must have made him more more wise than most people. But it has come to him terribly late uh, as a, as a monarch, which is what the president of the United States is as, a, as an elected monarch. Uh, that's appealing, but he's surrounded by people who seem to be almost tediously um, left-wing in an unrealistic modern manner that doesn't appeal to me. So I can't, my spirits neither neither dropped nor rose as a result of the election. I didn't really have a dog in that fight. I, probably the only person I've ever sympathized with in American politics in recent years is Bernie Sanders, who seemed to me at least to have some idea as to how to run a country, but, uh, but and whose brother lives in Oxford, my hometown. So, but I really and truly, I did not, um, I, I didn't, I didn't have any great passions in that. I still don't. Just a bit more, but I mean, as you, as you know, Bernie Sanders' brother, Larry Sanders, is a Green Party uh, councillor uh, over in Oxford, and he's their health spokesperson, I believe. 
Um, I know him. I'm sorry. I mean, I know he's there. I always find it rather amusing that his brother should be a, should, should should be in Oxford politics. Lots of people end up in Oxford. Yeah, he's, he's in green politics. I mean, what what just just a little bit more fires about the pandemic. I mean, Bernie Sanders. That that I, I people will find that curious. I mean, Bernie Sanders. You know, his he, his big base was amongst younger people who were both economically on the left, but also socially very progressive. I just think he had. I think he got it about the fact that huge numbers of people in America have had their have had their lives very seriously damaged by by the wild, unrestricted free trade of, of, of the past few years. I think he, he offered he offered some sort of uh, probably illusory, but some sort of hope to people who felt uh, the United States until the Reagan era had lived under this this arrangement called the Treaty of Detroit under which people worked hard all their lives in, in big, fairly successful, pretty well-protected industries, uh, ended their lives with reasonable, reasonable pensions, stayed employed, uh, which is an arrangement I rather like. And if any of the candidates had both understood that and might have tried to restore some of it, I think Bernie Sanders was one of them. A lot of things about him I didn't like. I think his attitude towards drugs, as in so many left-wing politicians was, was foolish but honestly looking at the the, the assembly of candidates i thought if, if if the democratic party had wanted to beat donald trump he, he would have been the person they should have chosen agreed very strong very strongly agree on on the pandemic then let's talk about the pandemic so look both of us cards on the table both of us loathe lockdown i regard it as a atrocious intrusion on personal freedom uh it has all sorts, and I've written about the impact on mental health. I wrote today about the rise in, in poverty, which I believe is avoidable given government policies. The difference between you and me is I believe lockdown is an unavoidable evil in order to prevent the transmission of a deadly illness that has killed, if we're going by excess deaths, which is, I would argue, as scientists have the consensus is the most reliable indicator. So the uh, the excess deaths above the five-year average, 80,000 people, one in every 832 of our fellow citizens have perished in the, in the space of a few months, even though most people haven't actually contracted coronavirus. So that's a measure of how deadly it is. Why, why do you oppose these dreadful measures that we've all had to, you know, 2020, a terrible year, the worst year that any of us that people in these countries have had to endure since the end of world war two why do you oppose measures which are there to prevent the spread of a very very deadly illness well you you make this presumption this assertion uh, that these measures do uh, prevent and do protect and i don't believe that this is so uh, there's quite a lot of work being done uh, on the 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 outcomes of political actions supposedly against the virus all over the world. And no one has established even any congruence between the stringency and severity of shutdown measures and the number of lives lost. And that's been the case from the start. And I think we were at liberty to doubt that it would work from the start. I think that, that to me, the whole idea of a government which can't even uh, educate people after 11 years of schooling can control a virus uh, is a bit fanciful. But leave that aside for a moment. 
the the fundamental question from the beginning was one of proportion was the action proposed by the government more or less a strangulation of the economy a throttling of the national health service an increasing uh, attack on personal liberty was it justified by the threat it's a question that covid 19 is a disease from which people die uh, but were they dying or likely to die in the quantities predicted particularly by the modeling of the imperial college which had a poor record modeling in the past i have to say which was easily discoverable uh, were they uh, in fact preventable deaths in the way which the government proposed to prevent them uh, were, the, were the measures as i say remotely in proportion to what was uh, what was proposed and did they work and i think the answer to all those questions appeared to me at the time to be no and i don't just take this view plucking it out of the air I was particularly impressed by what was said by a, a very distinguished uh, a professor of uh, microbiological medicine, Sutrin Bhakti of the University of Mainz in Germany, whose uh, whose writings and, and speeches of the time now read like prophecy. Uh, who said that this was the most terrible mistake, an overestimation of, of the danger, and would be bound to do particularly very grave damage to the to the healthy and old, which of course it has done, and to society in general in, and, and was unjustified. And the, the work of Professor John Ioannidis of, of Stanford University, who, who immediately spotted that the, 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 the alleged levels of mortality being predicted were, were, were simply didn't accord with what we knew about the way the disease had behaved. And also very early on, the, um, the, the work of which the Financial Times, to its credit, picked up at the time, uh, the work of Sunetra Gupta, another resident of my great city, Oxford, uh, who was highly sceptical uh, about Imperial College's idea of, of, of just how vulnerable the population would be to the disease. And if you follow through the succeeding months, as I have very carefully, the actual figures of deaths and the nature of them, then you, you find that the, the supposed pandemic is in fact largely a, a, a statistical matter. Uh, but it, if it hadn't been for the government's incessant promotion uh, of deaths as, as, as having been the consequence of COVID, where many of them quite probably were not, if, it, if the government had, had admitted that many of those who were dying were in fact people of, of great age who suffered from serious other diseases at the same time, uh, then we wouldn't be in this state of panic, which allows us to be hurried into the into accepting these extremely drastic and damaging measures which have in my view done permanent uh, probably irreparable damage to our society and will leave our heirs and successors having to cope with the most enormous indebtedness for the foreseeable future so there's quite a lot there so let me just try and just, just answer a few you are. it's a big question i thought I'd no, I, no 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 i wasn't i wasn't criticizing you it's it's it's, it's no, no, for, i don't don't, don't. Um, so in terms of the scale of, of of the national disaster, I mean, you know, I would put it to you that 80,000 people is twice the number of people who died in the Blitz. And when we're talking about the the age, for example, this, this comes uh, up. Let me, let, me, let me just respond to that, if I may, because you know, the, the number of people who die in, a, in an aerial bombardment of a city is, is, is over a certain period of time is going to be of a certain order. I, one of the, the most shocking things that I could ever say during this, and I said it from the very beginning, 
uh, is this. Every day in this country, 1,600 people die. Uh, each of those deaths is a tragedy for those directly involved. And, and I'm a great Sir John Dunn person, no man is an island unto himself, and the, the death of any man diminishes me. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, but 1,600 people die every day. And some of those die of respiratory diseases, particularly during the winter months. Well, okay, but just on that. A lot of people don't seem to realize that if you, that it's, it's, a, it's a matter of classifying deaths, which in many cases would have happened anyway, or not that much later uh, if there'd been no COVID at all. And the 1968 69 uh, influenza, uh, the supposed the so called Hong Kong flu, which came to this country, I believe, killed more people. And there was no national so, crisis and no national shutdown. That, 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 that answers your point. You see, didn't go into a, into a complete state of, of yeah, but, but, deaths every night. What you've just said there about Hong Kong flu answers your own point, though, surely, because the, the point was, you're quite right, there wasn't a lockdown. It did kill a significant number of people, but based on the circulation of the flu, across the entire population. The difference is in this particular instance, severe lockdown measures have happened. The vast majority of the population have not had coronavirus. We've done antibody tests quite extensively. The ONS looks at the proportion of people with antibodies. So we've had an excess death rate of 80,000 people. And, and I'll just show you, I'm not gonna, this is not, by the way, not something I make a, a habit of, but otherwise I'd, I'd show you on a piece of paper. Let me just show you a little graph of antibodies, uh, of, of, sorry, not antibodies, of excess deaths. So this is the five-year average of deaths there plotted. And then you can see what happened in March. We have a huge increase in excess deaths. And then as lockdown measures kick in, it decreases. And then what we've had as the economy was reopened without a functioning test and trace system, which they handed to Serco, those excess deaths, which now correlate, by the way, with the number of people because testing's improved, dying of coronavirus, have gone up again and ended up already about twenty, about a fifth above average. That is a huge, huge increase in oh, death. In fact, there's no precedent uh, on our records for that increase in deaths. You're wrong about there being no precedent. I mean, they, they have, they, they're, they're very frequently in this country, there are... Not, no, we not, not since those comparable records began, which don't... Battle of graphs out of brought some on my own, but um, there's a very useful website called In Proportion, which goes into the, the, the numbers of occasions on which it's, it's generally influenza rather than, uh, rather than coronavirus, the number of occasions in recent years on which there have been very large numbers of excess deaths during the, during the winter, almost every year in this country, as you will know, because the National Health Service has been reduced to its minimum number, possible number of beds and probably too few. Almost every year, uh, the National Health Service has a winter crisis uh, in, in which there are excess deaths. Uh, and it's it's not by any means unprecedented all that. Because there's also the other question of of, of classification. And people, uh, you, you 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 would actually get um, Jenny Harris, I think, the, um, the deputy chief medical officer, saying quite early on, these are many of these deaths are deaths of people who've, who uh, who the deaths of people with COVID. Uh, but that's not to say they're from COVID. But an awful lot of deaths were classified as being. Uh, as a result of COVID, which were actually deaths of people who had COVID, had many, several other serious conditions as well. And you know as well as I do, the average age of death from COVID in this country is 82, uh, which is slightly higher than the average age of death in general. Absolutely. It is, as uh, here is a problem, and 
that you if, if you do so some very important points like, again let me, let me because I, and, and, and feel free to do so but i'll resist it uh, the the it, we've been quite successful in in recent years in keeping old people alive for longer but okay but let me just can i just answer a few of those points though because otherwise we're... there is a there is a difficulty uh if respiratory diseases come along then then old people particularly once you have cardiovascular conditions uh, will die in large numbers because they they have been kept alive successfully longer. It's a, it's a, it's a measure to some extent about success. But to make out of this uh, that what we're suffering is something similar to the the so-called Spanish flu of 1918 is simply false. It isn't, it isn't on that scale. It doesn't begin to approach that scale. And it doesn't justify uh, the level of national panic and frenzy, which has followed from it. No one's questioning that there are people who have died. Okay, well, let me, uh, let me, let me, let me respond to some of those points just quickly. If you're going to list excess deaths, you also have to list the very substantial numbers of excess deaths, and the research is still coming in on this, of people who died because they missed cancer appointments and treatments and all kinds of other things as a result of the general, of, of, of the general turning away from the health service, which was brought about. Uh, by the panic spread by the government and, and the large parts of the media, which kept people from going for, for vital medical treatment. And the, the, a very large number of non-COVID excess deaths can be recorded here as well. And you have to be careful to separate those. The statistical, uh, the, the statistical issues of this are very complicated. But let me uh, just come back uh, quickly, uh, Peter, come on. John Lee, the noted pathologist, okay. uh, has pointed out that it, it, it's a lot of the, the deaths which have been recorded as COVID may not actually have been so and now we have this really strange thing which is that the uh, both um, influenza and pneumonia seem to have practically disappeared from among us well they haven't but, but let me just let me just but the, 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 the deaths from them are not being recorded there's a difference as, as same as in recorded crime and recorded others, there's a difference between recorded uh, deaths and the actual Facts of what's necessarily going on. So, the Peter, come on, let me, come on. I think it's fair. I just have a, a little response to some of those yeah, points. Go ahead. I, so, it, in terms of, you're quite right. We have had uh, excess death significantly above the five-year average in previous flu epidemics. There's, we haven't had eighty thousand excess deaths from a flu epidemic in this country. Uh, that's just, that's just not the case. But also, well, we it, have. It's also based, and this is a really critical point, not only haven't we had anywhere near 80,000 excess deaths from a flu outbreak, that's, well, despite, the, that's despite the fact there haven't been... Let me answer that, Peter. So I'll, I'll just make this point. I'll make these just these little points. Then I promise you, you can come back on them. With the flu, the flu is allowed to just circulate around the population without restrictions. In this case, we've had 80,000 excess deaths whilst we've had huge restrictions which have prevented the vast majority of people in this country from contracting coronavirus. Now, if we'd allowed coronavirus to circulate like flu, those number of deaths would be much higher. And that point is a really important point about when people died. Uh, you know, this idea that these are very old people who were going to die soon anyway. Repeated studies, including one in the United States recently, found that those who died after contracting COVID-19 on average lost nearly 10 years of life. And part of the problem when we talk about underlying health conditions, which has always been discussed in relation to COVID-19, is there's a misconception amongst some that that means they're at death's door. But in America, a quarter of people under 65 have underlying health conditions. Now, clearly, obesity and other of these conditions definitely increase the risk 
of dying from COVID-19. And the other point is, and this I really think speaks to the point you're making uh, about the economic impact, is the studies show, including one study uh, from 49 nations in the OECD countries, these are advanced economies across the world, using COVID-19 data and economic data, found that those that locked down the swiftest and harshest tended to have a less bad economic impact as a consequence. That the problem with our case is the country, the government locked down too late, allowing the virus to enter into bigger, broader circulation than would have been the case otherwise. That if they'd locked down earlier, the infection, the outbreak would have been less. The 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 lockdown uh, and the disappearance of consumer confidence would have been less. And we would have had, instead of having the worst death toll and the worst economic hit potentially in the whole of Europe, we've got the worst of all worlds at the moment, we would have had less of an economic impact and less people dying. So that's the point I'd make to you. Well, yes, you're right, there are excess deaths caused by flu, but there's not a precedent for those excess deaths. And that's despite these extreme measures. If we locked down quick, it would have been less severe. And people are dying 10 years before they should have done. There are comparable precedents for those excess deaths, not exact ones, uh, is, is my point. And they, they are, they're not uh, out of the same class. But your most fundamental assertion, and one which, for which you can produce no evidence because there isn't any, uh, is that these shutdowns actually prevent the spread of the disease. I don't think anybody actually believes that the, the, the spread of the virus can be prevented or it can be done uh, even in the, in, the, in the view of the advocates of these measures, is that it's delayed. Uh, the famous flattening of the curve, the squashing of the sombrero, which we were promised would be achieved by Mr. Johnson's shutdown. And the key statistic here, which, which demonstrates that this didn't actually happen, is that in this country, the, the, the number of deaths peaked uh, on April the 8th. And the shutdown was announced on March the 23rd, and I suppose one could assume it was underway within a couple of days. But let's assume that the shutdown actually began on March the 23rd. That's uh, seven days of March plus eight days of April. That's 15 days. But the time from infection to death of coronavirus is roughly four weeks. So the, 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 here's the simple fact. The peaking of deaths did not result from the shutdown. The problem with... And, there no, and there, as, as I said before, re repeated examinations of the, uh, of, of the congruence or connections between uh, severity of shutdown and numbers of deaths do not show any such congruence or any such result. So not merely do you not have any causal proof that these measures have prevented the spread of the disease, you don't even have a correlation on which to place it. And you should stop saying it. But the whole thing is, because this is universally accepted by the BBC and by the government and by a very large proportion of the media, you can go around saying over and over again, uh, well, these lockdowns saved lives. These lockdowns... I mean, just... just, just, just Absolutely. There is, you had a very long go, and I, I, I restrained myself with huge, uh, huge determination from interrupting you. Uh, so please do me the same favour. Uh, there is no evidence uh, that these measures did what is claimed, and it's only because there is a ridiculous, uh, unchallenged consensus enforced by what is effectively state broadcasting and, frankly, supine media coverage, uh, that the question isn't constantly asked: Do these things work? No, they didn't. There's no, there's no, there's no proof that they worked at all. What we do know, absolutely for certain, is that these shutdowns have destroyed immense amounts of jobs and businesses. Uh, have reduced huge numbers of people to utter lonesome misery 
uh, have devastated the health service, have led to very large numbers of, 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 of completely needless deaths of people who were deprived or deprived themselves of necessary medical tests and treatment. And we know this. Uh, and the price of them has been colossal. And it really is a case here of, yes, yes, comrade, I see your broken eggs, but where is your omelette? Uh, matches of broken eggs as a result of this policy and the, the economic consequences. And of course, if I talk about the economic consequences, someone, I hope not you, will accuse me of caring only about money and not about life. But the economic consequences of this have been so catastrophic that people can't even begin to imagine uh, the narrowness and, and misery of life in the future, which is being going to be visited on people as a result of an economically, politically and medically illiterate government imposing on the country disastrous measures which were wholly ineffective, totally unnecessary and deeply damaging. So on, on, on the point you make about when deaths distanced compared to when the national lockdown was introduced, which you're quite right, was the 23rd of March uh, on the Monday when Boris Johnson addressed the nation and ordered the total shutdown of the country imposed by law. You're absolutely right about that. I know I am. But, what, but what, what I think is important to to note is one week earlier, the government told people not to go to their offices, not to go to the pub and to avoid non-essential travel. And obviously a few days after that, before the lockdown, all pubs, bars and those and, and, and were, were shut down in the country. And even before that week before, uh, when the government, when the public were told to socially distance, it wasn't imposed by law millions of people started to do that. Indeed, many had started to do that before that Monday. But the, the difference is if the government, and this is the point about the economic devastation, and that's why you're, you're, the peak in deaths you're talking about doesn't seem to correlate in the way it do, you, you would expect on the 23rd, because millions of people were already yeah. taking drastic measures. That absolute critical point about the economic consequences mm-hmm. The studies show that countries which managed to contain the virus, which took measures earlier on, had less of an economic consequence than this country. We've got the worst well, death toll in Europe and also one of the worst economic consequences. If we thought that, we wouldn't. The problem, the problem with this country is that it's largely destroyed its manufacturing sector, which is something I think we could both agree on. Yeah. Uh, therefore, extraordinarily dependent uh, on its service sector. And the measures which the government introduced were particularly devastating to, to, to a service economy such as we have. And if the economic results were worse, that's almost certainly the reason for it. I, Sweden, for instance, which we could discuss, but let's probably not uh, in, in general, uh, has had some bad economic consequences from, from, from its non-shutdown. But this is largely because Sweden has maintained a fairly considerable manufacturing and export sector. And of course, with the rest of Europe, uh, strangling itself uh, if you have a manufacturing export sector it will suffer from a loss of, a loss of business from other countries so you, you you have to look at these things with a bit of care before you draw conclusions from them and that's what i'm saying here but i don't if, if you either you think that these shutdowns are effective or you don't if you're going to say well actually yes the the fact that the, the people were staying home before the shut, shutdown voluntarily uh, meant that the, the deaths peaked on April the 8th, which I don't think is true. But if you if you are going to say that, then you can't simultaneously say that the shutdown was beneficial. You, you would then be able to say that the Swedish approach of letting people make their own minds up would have been just as good. But in so, fact, the pattern, the pattern of, the, of, of, the, of, of the virus is a pattern which is very often followed by viruses. And it, I don't believe there's any evidence at all that what we did in any way altered its progress. 
uh, it, it did what it did, and then it, and, and then it faded away. And we currently have a, a largely statistical uh, second wave, which is um, which the government is struggling by, by by dispatching huge numbers of people into the country and advertising fr frantically for, for people to come and be tested, is struggling to, to, to maintain through statistical means. Well, we, we, we can so, see it's, which the, the, the original the original wave of the virus is, is a pretty standard pattern, as I, if you look at the virus. Well, I mean, on that, on, on that, on that. That's what it did, and the, there's no evidence at all that these frantic and destructive actions which you support uh, did anything to prevent or lessen it. So, well, I mean, that's, I, I would say, very much not true because what we saw with the first lockdown and and you're right in terms of it there was voluntary measures were encouraged beforehand but that was never going to be sufficient and we wouldn't have brought down the deaths anywhere near as we did if you, you just look, if you just look quickly at those as i showed i won't flash it up again just quickly, the graph the i'll argue with you i'll argue with you about what may or may not be right but if you're going to say something is not true then you're going to have to demonstrate the truth I, of your i am i am absolutely I absolutely defy you to do so. Okay, so let's let's see the graph again. Let's see the graph. Let, let's have a look at the graph quickly. Why, Peter? Why did why? Because when we're talking about flu, by the way, this is not the good season for the transmission of of of, of, of viruses. It, it, it wasn't in the winter. Why did in that? Why did it go up so steeply and then so steeply decline? as lockdown measures kicked in. That shows, and we've seen this across the world, if you stop people interacting with each other, then by definition, they can't spread the virus to each other. That's why the infection rate collapsed and then eventually gradually came up again as the winter months come in and people are inside more. We just agreed that the, the, the lockdown measures didn't kick in. We just agreed that they couldn't conceivably have kicked in quickly enough to produce that result. They did. No, they couldn't have done. They, they just started, they, the infection rate started to come down just not sufficiently. Owen, ask, ask, answer me a series of questions. What is lockdown supposed to prevent? Lockdown is to stop people interacting with each other in close proximity, particularly in dorms. With, with the aim of preventing what? Of infecting one another with a contagious Time from infection, which you say lockdown is supposed to prevent, the time from infection to death is approximately four weeks. Three to four weeks. How long? No, approximately four. How, how long? How, how long, assuming... Uh, which is probably untrue, that lockdown began the moment Johnson ordered it on March the 23rd. How long is it from, from March the 23rd to April the 8th? But as I pointed out, lockdown... Oh, as, I, as I pointed out, millions of people they were told to by the government. If it, if, if, the infection if, rate came down. Compulsory lockdown. Lockdown were preventing infection, then it couldn't conceivably, given a, a period of from infection to death of four weeks, it couldn't conceivably have led to a peak of deaths on April the 8th. Of course it could, for the it, reasons I've explained. People, if you had less people interacting with each other because people were working at home, traveling less, socially distancing from each other, which took place significantly before the national lockdown, which is the only way of bringing down infections in a drastic way, then of course you'd have a peak on April the 8th. I'm sorry, I've just won this bout and you haven't noticed. I, I, but but you but you haven't, Peter. Not, no, I have. I by definition, the infection rate started to come down, but not anywhere near the amount needed without compulsory lockdown. That's why we had a compulsory lockdown. Infection to death is twenty-eight days. The time from the, the from Johnson's shutdown to the the, the the moment when deaths began to fall is fifteen days maximum. What's the difference between fifteen and twenty-eight? 
Yeah, but the week before the lockdown, well, people, no the, point in, in those week, in those two weeks beforehand, particularly a week before, millions of people voluntarily, at the instruction of the government, started to... So by definition, Peter, think about it. Of course, there were lower infections because people started to socially distance, wash their hands and all the other things we were told to do, but no, not enough. That's why we had to have a drastic lockdown, which then would mean a sustained collapse in infections. No, but, but, but it, you're, this, is, this, is, this is a nonsense because what you're saying is that, is that without the lockdown, which you say created these results, without, without the lockdown, the, the, the infections were already re being reduced. Not you can't have it both ways. No, I mean, no, no, Peter. The point of a, the point of a locked the point of a lockdown. The story of the Chinese executioner. Would you like to hear it? Go on. Okay. Well, there's a very, very famous Chinese executioner who used to used to go around China cutting people's heads off with such skill and artistry that crowds had come to watch him do it. And on one occasion, he came to the small provincial town, and uh, he he was confronted by the the condemned man, and he came into the uh, in, in, into the execution chamber in front of an invited audience. Who, uh, who paid good money to watch. And the executioner began to twirl his, his sword about in a rather, frankly, um, finicky manner. Uh, did this about five minutes. And eventually the condemned man said, well, I keep hearing what a wonderful executioner you are. Uh, but, so do you think you, you, you mind not faffing about anymore and just get on with this? And the executioner said, kindly nod, please. Uh, the because the, the, the victim nodded and his head fell off because he had already been executed. The same thing's just happened to you. You just don't realise you've lost the argument. Pete, Peter, I, I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's such an obvious point. Let me just put this to you, just just so we're absolutely clear. If you tell the nation there is a deadly virus in circulation that they should not go to the pub, they should not go into the office, they should not travel, and they should not socialise then you will get a fall in infections. But it will go down only to a certain level because it's not enforced by the law. And therefore, a significant number of the population will not observe those instructions which are not backed up by law. What That's what we had before the lockdown was announced on the 23rd. So, of course, infections were going to come down from where they were based on telling people there's a deadly illness and you need to avoid doing these things but they would only come down to a certain level unless you then have a compulsory national lockdown, which is then what happened. I don't know why that's hard to understand, but it's a very, very basic fact. And the point you made about Sweden, Sweden has had 6,798 deaths. Norway has had 334, and Finland's had 399. You're wasting, you're wasting time. It's not a fact. It's an opinion which you hold. Uh, which you can't actually back with fact. Well, I can. I can point out that less people are being infected and therefore there's a consequence. Welcome to it, but it doesn't... It, and also, it's contradictory. If you simultaneously, if simultaneously to say that lockdowns were necessary uh, because they prevented deaths, but also then to say, but actually, before we had a lockdown, no, we were... No, already I'm saying that if you have a, if you have a voluntary if you have voluntary measures, you can only bring infection down to a certain level. And we would still... And the point you made about illnesses is hospitals would have been overwhelmed because they wouldn't have been able to treat those other illnesses like quite correctly you speak about. They might have been, but they weren't. And actually, there was absolutely no... There was a lockdown. No sign at all that they were going to be. And uh, Fraser Nelson has written a very interesting article on the lack of overwhelming uh, in, in, in our hospitals at the time, which simply didn't exist. And it, it only needs to be looked up to find. He got hold of the figures. And I, I commend it to you. Okay. But you, you know, I can't, there's no point in going over this. What, you, what you're mistaking your opinion 
for a fact. I've just no, I'm just I'm just pointing yeah. out that if you have social distancing before a national lockdown, you will bring down infections, but just not to the degree that you need to prevent lots of people from dying in the NHS and being overwhelmed. But we're going round in circles, so we should probably wrap this up. I'm staying in the same place. I, you're going round and round in circle round around me. I mean, you're, 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 your argument is indeed circular. Nothing can assail your position. Okay, well, I, I, I have been decapitated. My, as you pointed out, my head has been removed. Uh, so we should probably well, leave it. Without it's, noticing it, it's, it's a good metaphor for that. Okay, I've, I, I, I've been, I, 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 as I've said, my head has been duly decapitated. Honestly, finally, let's just wrap up quickly. What do you think is going to happen next? That's what I want to hear. Do you think the Conservative government will survive the turmoil that will come even if mass vaccination happens? I'm not sure our political system will survive the turmoil which comes when people realise just how much damage has been done to our society by these vaccines. Uh, when people find that they have no jobs, no prospects, they can't pay their rent, they can't pay their mortgage, their businesses have collapsed, uh, their children have no future, uh, they themselves have no chance of, of anything approaching a job resembling what they used to have when they find out that the country is immensely poorer than the National Health Service, which they bang their pots and pans for in, in March, April and May is a shriveled uh, shadow of its former self and so are all the other public services from the, from the railways to the schools. When they find out what has been done to them uh, by these buffoons, I think there will probably be a considerable political revenge. And I would imagine the Conservative Party will take the brunt of it, but I don't think the Labour Party will escape because it failed to oppose it. And our political system may well enter a new and extremely unpleasant era, which I don't personally look forward to. I don't want to live in an impoverished country where everybody is, is justifiably angry. Uh, but I think that's why, that's why I fought against it uh, so much. I, I never wanted this to happen. I, I simply wanted to prevent it. I wanted governments to act proportionately and, and sanely and, 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 and instead of as they have done. But I, I've failed. Uh, those of us who've opposed this have failed. We've never reached more than a very small minority of the population. Uh, you're, you've, you've won uh, one in terms of public opinion. Uh, but what will happen now uh, will be so unpleasant that uh, it will render all this largely irrelevant. I, I've never seen debt on this scale. Uh, I've never seen uh, the, the destruction of, of, of employment on this scale. I've never seen the wrecking of people's education on this scale. I've never seen social dislocation on this scale. I've never seen the deliberate spreading of misery uh, particularly among the formerly healthy old on this scale, and the mistreatment of people in care homes and the separations of families. It's appalling. And as I say, there will be a price to pay, and it won't, it won't necessarily be a rational price. And I can't see that the, the, the Conservative Party will, will, will survive it because people will undoubtedly blame them as they blame them for, for the much smaller catastrophe of the exchange rate mechanism for many years afterwards. I think they're suffering for that, and I think they're probably right. But the whole political system uh, is, 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 is what is in danger. The whole stability of our society is in danger. This is a colossal thing, and uh, we'll be paying for it for a very long time indeed. Well, on that cheery note, thank you very much, Peter. I will take my decapitated head away with me. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. We don't... We disagree. We agreed on some and strongly disagreed on others, and that's how it would work. But I, I hugely appreciate it. I think I know one has you know, disagreement is, is vital. If there is no disagreement, the, the, the truth will not be discovered. Um, Amen. You're, you're my opponent, not my enemy. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Cheers, Peter. Thanks a lot. Well, blimey, thanks for listening to that. 
Don't forget to like the show in iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and share this show with everyone. If you want to support us as we expand, we really appreciate it. Either on the support function in the podcast description or at patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. We've got loads to come. Speak to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.